Welcome to Urban Dharma, the podcast, where suffering is optional. Hi, this is Reverend Kusla coming to you from downtown Los Angeles, from the International Buddhist Meditation Center in the heart of Koreatown. It's a bright and sunny day in Southern California. It's about 10.30 in the morning, and it's Monday. Well, a couple Saturdays ago, I found myself at True Yoga in Thousand Oaks, California. The presentation was on the death consciousness. I used uh, two books, or I should say I referred to two books. One is an e-book that's free at Urban Dharma in the e-book section, and it's called Preparing for Death and Helping the Dying. The other book is a classic 1964 text called A Psychedelic Experience, a manual based on the Tibetan Book of the Dead, written by Timothy Leary, Ralph Metzner, and Richard Alpert. Uh, it's available on Amazon.com for $9.60. I referred to those two books as I explained about meditation and how our meditation practice can lead us to different states of consciousness, in fact, to altered states of consciousness. So what you're about to hear is my talk at True Yoga in Thousand Oaks, California, on death and dying and the states of consciousness. Okay. Well, um, this past Wednesday, today is Saturday, this past Wednesday I went down to the uh, L.A. Archdiocese and interviewed Father Alexi Smith who is the director of the ecumenical and interreligious office of the Los Angeles Archdiocese. If that's not a big title, I don't know what is. And um, so that's up and running now on my website and on iTunes. Uh, and he had some really um, interesting things to say. And, and we've known each other for a really long time, so I always have fun when I speak with him because his mind is quick and his mouth is even faster. And... Um, one of the questions I asked him was uh, about Catholicism and suffering. I said to him, uh, I've asked a, a few Catholic priests about, can you have Catholicism without suffering? And all of them had said, no. Uh, and then he thought about it and said, well, I can see why some Catholic priests would say that. And then I said to him, well... You know, Buddhism is about ending suffering. Now, if we are successful in ending all suffering, do we also end Catholicism? <laughs> you know? And he said, no. And he was emphatic about that. And then I said to him, well, I guess I don't have to feel guilty. And he said, I didn't think Buddhists felt guilty. I thought it was us. And I think I said, I think you're right. So it's, so it's not only is it talking with him, but he's got a great sense of humor. And we talk about how he became a priest and what he does and how he feels about the new pope and interreligious dialogue. So if you're curious and, and uh, about that, please go to iTunes and check it out or my website. And then this past um, Tuesday, Tuesday, this past Tuesday, I spoke at UCLA to the medical chaplains. Uh, from the Santa Monica Hospital and the Westwood Hospital about death and dying. 
And they found it rather interesting. So I thought I'd talk about that today, and then next, in two weeks, we'll go back to the eight realizations. Um, um, but there's a lot of curiosity about consciousness and dying. And um, so they asked me if I'd speak a little bit about that. How do Buddhists die? And what happens to their consciousness? And so it just so happens on my website, I have a free ebook which anyone can download once they go to my website called Preparing for Death and Helping the Dying. Now, this will not be <clears throat> a depressing presentation. This will be an informative and inspiring presentation. Because in Buddhism, they say, even if you're not enlightened, when you go into the process of dying, the last thought you have may be the thought of enlightenment. You have the ability and opportunity with every thought up until the final one to achieve enlightenment, according to Buddhism. So um, the idea of uh, thinking that it's a lost cause um, is false in Buddhism because it is real and an opportunity for all of us to practice Buddhism and meditate. Um, th this, is, this comes from page 20 of the booklet. So if you download the PDF file, this starts on page 20. And I'd like to talk a little bit about, about, about what this says and then my own personal practice and my own personal experience. Um, becoming familiar with the stages of the death process. One reason people tend to be afraid of death is because they do not know what will happen to them. In the Tibetan tradition of Buddhism, there is a clear and detailed explanation of the process of dying, which involves eight stages. The eight stages correspond to the gradual dissolution of various factors, such as the four elements, earth, water, fire, and air. As one passes through the eight stages, there are various internal and external signs. The four elements dissolve over the first four stages. In the first stage, when the earth element dissolves, the external signs are that one's body becomes thinner and weaker, and internally, one has a vision of a mirage. The second stage involves the dissolution of the water element. The external sign is that one's bodily fluids dry up, and internally, one has the vision of smoke. The fire element dissolves in the third stage. The external sign is that the heat and digestive power of the body decline, and internally, one has a vision of sparks. In the fourth stage, where the wind or air element dissolves, the external sign is that breathing ceases, and internally, one has a vision of a flame about to go out. This is the point at which would normally be, we would normally be declared clinically dead. The gross physical elements have all dissolved, the breath has stopped, and there is no longer any movement in the brain or circulatory system. However, according to Buddhism, death has not yet taken place because the mind or consciousness is still present in the body. I'm going to find page two. So this is where it starts to get interesting because we go from a subtle to even subtler 
level of consciousness according to Buddhism. There are various levels of mind, gross, subtle, and very subtle. The gross mind of consciousness includes our six consciousnesses, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, and mental consciousness, and 80 instinctive conceptions. The six consciousnesses dissolve over the first four stages of the death process, and the 80 conceptions dissolve in the fifth stage, following which one experiences a white vision. In, in the sixth stage, the white vision dissolves and a red vision appears. In the seventh stage, the red vision dissolves and a vision of darkness appears. The white, red, and dark visions constitute the subtle level of consciousness. Finally, in the eighth stage, the dark vision dissolves and the very subtle mind of clear light becomes manifest. This is the most subtle and pure level of our mind or consciousness. Experienced meditators are able to use this clear light mind to meditate and gain a realization of absolute truth and even attain enlightenment. That is why such meditators are not necessarily afraid of death. Now, isn't that interesting? Has anybody ever experienced the white light, red light, darkness, or clear light? Okay. White light. Yeah. And you know what came to my mind as I was reading this? The fact that, you know, oftentimes they say when a person dies and it comes back to life because of medical procedures, there was sort of this tunnel and there was this white light and there were people sort of waving at them saying, come on, come on. And then the doctor says, not yet, not yet. And it worked. And, and I'm thinking that might be the clear light. That might be the place where most people who don't meditate stop becoming aware of their consciousness. And yet the advanced meditator would be able to follow the consciousness to a more subtle and subtle level until finally the clear light appears. Now, in my mind, I don't know what the difference is between white light and clear light, but they said clear light is more subtle than white light. So it might be white light with a shade on. You don't know. Now, there is a book which you may be able to find, and maybe not. This book is called The Psychedelic Experience, first published in 1964. <laughs> now, some of you may not have been around in 1964. But this was written by Timothy Leary, Ralph Metzner, and Richard Alper. And what they did, which I think is remarkable, they took the Tibetan Book of the Dead, because the Tibetan Book of the Dead is a roadmap for dying. And they rewrote it to include ego death. The psychedelic experience is about the death of the ego. And as I was thinking about this, well, what, what are we most afraid of? Is it our body dying or our ego dying? And I would imagine most of us, it would be the ego, that sense of self, because that's our awareness. And, and our body is a wonderful vehicle, but in itself has no awareness. 
it's sensitive, but it, it can't think without the mind. And oftentimes in Buddhism, they um, show it as a blind man carrying a sighted cripple on his shoulders. So the cripple can't walk but can see, and the blind man can walk but can't see. And it's a great combination. So our mind and body can be thought of, perhaps, in that way. Well, you heard about the lights. Let me just read you a little bit. Now, this was, I found this for a dollar at Bodhichi Bookstore back in the 80s. And, you know, best dollar I ever spent. Now, I don't advocate LSD. I've never taken it myself. But I like the idea of, of the way they described ego death according to the Tibetan Book of the Dead. Uh, the first bardo, the period of ego loss or non-game ecstasy. Doesn't that sound like a Nintendo game or something, you know? Part one, the primary clear light. Part two, the secondary clear light. Second bardo, the period of hallucinations. Second bardo, explanation, vision one, the source. Vision, vision two, the internal flow of archetypal processes. Vision three, the fire flow of internal unity. Vision four, the wave vibration structure of external forms. Vision five, the vibratory waves of external unity. Vision six, the retinal circus. Vision seven, the magic theater and wrathful visions. Now, it sounds very 60s, I know, but... Uh, but what they really did is allowed people who were tripping to have a guide lead them through the various stages of ego death. Now, ego death, for the most part, didn't last. It was ego death for 12 hours or so, and then it resurrected. But we can also observe ego death in our meditation process, in our practice. You know, chemicals take 12 hours, meditation takes 12 years. But meditation allows us to integrate those experiences in our everyday life and practice. Generally speaking, when one takes drugs, uh, it happens too quickly and there's no chance to integrate the insights into everyday life. And these days, I must say in 2006, taking drugs is a lot different than it seemed to be in 1964. So these days, when you take LSD, you go to a rave party. You don't explore your consciousness, you explore your hedonism. So, how can we approach this from a Buddhist perspective? Well, in Buddhism, there are two kinds of meditation. There's insight meditation and, vi and tranquility meditation, vipassana and samatha. In samatha meditation and tranquility meditation, there are deeper and deeper levels of one-pointedness. And I'm going to talk about that today. In the first jhana, in the first level of concentration, in the first level of tranquility, what we find are five characteristics. Applied thought, sustained thought, happiness, bliss, and equanimity. What that means in real-life terms is this. Applied thought and sustained thought. The example I'm going to use is meditation on the breath. We have the sensation of breath going out and coming in, going out and coming in. We take our mind, apply it to the sensation of breath, and hold it there. 
applied thought and sustained thought. When we become more concentrated, go into a deeper state of one-pointedness, we have bliss and pleasure arising in the body. We have happiness arising in the mind. And we have the first glimmer of balance or equanimity. It's a very pleasant place to be. As we go deeper and venture into the second jhana, we have three characteristics. We leave behind applied thought and sustained thought. Now we have a greater sense of bliss and pleasure, a greater sense of happiness, and a greater sense of equanimity or balance of mind. Instead of intending or willfully holding our mind on the object of meditation, it's been trained now to simply rest on the object of meditation. If we want to go further, if we want to go further, we need to let something go. Buddhism is a path of renunciation. In Buddhism, they say we are already perfect. What prevents us from experiencing that perfection is our lust, our greed, our hatred, and delusion. So we don't need more love. We need less lust. We don't need more generosity. We need less greed. We don't need more kindness and compassion. We need less hatred and anger. And we already have all the wisdom we'll ever need if we can get rid of our delusion and our ignorance. I think that is such a powerful and positive message that each and every one of us is already perfect. What are we going to get rid of in order to go to the third jhana? What we're going to get rid of is our bliss and our pleasure. The bliss and pleasure we find in the body. Now there is something important to be said about our experience as human beings. We have been blessed with this fortuitous human rebirth. We have been given this vehicle, this body, which is an amazing vehicle. It can ride bicycles and drive cars and swim and hike. Uh, the downside is it tends to get old and frail, and then eventually it stops working altogether. But everything in this world faces that dilemma because everything in this world was created. Everything in this world had a start point and it has an end point. So we're on a timer. And by looking around today, everybody looks like they're feeling pretty good. But you know when you get to be 80 or 90, you probably feel more bad than good. You probably have more bad days than good days. You probably curse a little bit at the hip replacements you got that didn't work out very well, and the hearing aid that keeps needing new batteries, and the trifocals that keep getting fogged up because you continue to sweat too much. It's just not the way it's supposed to be. Our boundaries are ever increasing and more obvious every day. If we can figure out a way to let go of our pleasure and bliss, we also, at the very same time, are letting go of our pain. Pain and pleasure are connected. Most of us are willing to give up our pain, but few of us are willing to give up our pleasure. And we're not going to give it up forever. We're just going to give it up for the time we're meditating, the time we're going into deeper and deeper states of 
tranquility. If you can figure out how to do it, and that's a whole other talk, and if you want to do it, you will then go into the third jhana and have two characteristics left, happiness of the mind and balance or equanimity. In order to get to the fourth jhana, the deepest level of concentration, we have to give one more thing up. But we don't want to give up our balance, our equanimity. We want to give up our happiness now. And we don't want to give up our happiness forever because being happy is such a pleasant experience. And I think it comes along with our human baggage. It's one of our, our perks of being a human being. We can be happy. But if we can figure out how to give up happiness and figure out how to want to give up happiness, what we're also giving up is sadness. We'll never be sad again because sadness and happiness are connected. And I know it doesn't sound very human not to feel pleasure and not to feel pain and not to feel happiness and not to feel sadness because after all, isn't life just one big roller coaster ride? Isn't that the best part of life, the highs and the lows? Don't you feel most alive when you're going up or going down? Yes. But how does it feel to have perfect balance? How does it feel to have no preferences? How does it feel to have choiceless awareness? And this fourth level of tranquility allows us to experience that directly. So the advanced meditator who figures out why and how to let go of happiness for a little while, also lets go of sadness for a little while, and now finds himself or herself in the fourth jhana, which has one characteristic, perfect balance of mind. But that's not it yet. We have a little more to do if we want to go further into this, deeper into our consciousness. When I first started studying Buddhism, I, I bought a book, 900 pages long, called the Vasudhi Magga, the Path of Purification, the Reader's Digest of the Entire Buddhist Path. <laughs> And I'm thinking, this is so cool. I've got the whole Buddhist path in one book. And I opened that book and I started to read. And it was one of the most boring books I've ever read. <laughs> it has categories and it has references to things that happened 2,000 years ago or longer. And, and, and so my teacher, my second teacher, Dr. Ratanasara, a Sri Lankan Theravada elder monk, allowed me to study with him. And we would go page by page. And I would ask questions and he would answer them. And I can still reflect back on that. It was one of my favorite times in my Buddhist journey was to sit with him and be able to just ask him any question I wanted to. I'm the kind of guy that really likes to ask dumb questions, though. And one of the dumb questions I asked him was, did they have toothbrushes back at the time of the Buddha? And Dr. Ratnasar said, of course they did. And one of the student's obligations to the teacher was to bring him new toothbrushes occasionally. And I said, well, where, do you, where did they buy toothbrushes back then? Well, they didn't buy them. They made them. There are certain roots of plants that they were able to, to um, stimulate the ends and bristle. And they would use that. And, and so they would clean their teeth with this root with little bristles on the end. I'm thinking, that is so cool. You know, and I would have never found out if I didn't ask the stupid questions. But as we went further and further into the Vasudhimaga, 
they talked about really interesting states of consciousness. When you start to look inside rather than outside, and you start to see your internal reality in a very special way, your internal consciousness. And I'm thinking to myself, my whole life, my eyes have only been used to look outside. They can't look inside. So they're talking about this. How does a person look inside their head? How can you see inside your head? What organ do we have that can become aware of our internal consciousness? And they went into various descriptions detailing what that internal consciousness might look like. And one of the things they talked about was it looked like a bunch of fireflies, points of light. Another thing they talked about was it looked like big cotton balls. And another thing was streams and rivers of various colors and textures. And I'm thinking to myself, wow, how can I learn how to do that? Who can I talk to? Couldn't find anybody. Nobody reads the Vasudhimaga. Nobody practices this kind of meditation that I've been able to find in Los Angeles. Now there are a couple books and articles out on that subject, and I have it on my website, and you can download the e-books and read about this stuff. But in the 80s, I was stuck. I couldn't figure out how to do it. I couldn't find anybody who was doing it or had done it. So I said to myself, one night, as I was sitting in Dharma Vijaya Buddhist Vihara, a Buddhist temple on Crenshaw Boulevard, at that time they had the garage transformed into a meditation hall, and there was a carpet on the floor, and, uh, and a, a Japanese Zen master who would sit there quietly for hours at a time, being inspiration to all of us who were moving and squirming. I said to myself, I think I could look inside if I had something to look at. And then I said, how could I create something to look at? And then I remembered that when people took pictures of me with a flash cube, this is a long time ago when they had flash cubes, there would be a sort of after image created from the flash cube. And I could literally close my eyes and see the flash cube as clear as day. And then in a few moments, the flash cube after image would sort of fade away. But if they took another picture, it would be bright as ever. And there it would be. And I said to myself, maybe I should go out and get some flash cubes. And sort of zap my face and then close my eyes and watch the after image and practice looking inside. But then I ditched that idea. I'm thinking that's crazy, you know sitting in the Zendo taking pictures of yourself. <laughs> You're supposed to be getting rid of ego kusala, not creating it, you know. And then I thought about this. I had read or heard or come across this idea of eye squinting. That if you squint your eyes really tightly together, there's these little points of light that are created, the little neurons or protons or some kind of chemical thing happens, and you can see them. So imagine me in the Zendo, squinting, relaxing, squinting, relaxing, creating these points of light, these little firefly images. And I saw them. And I was able to 
hold the image for a little while, and then it would fall away, just like the flash cubes. And I'd squint again, and I'd relax, and there would be that little points of light image again, and they'd last a while. And I was practicing looking inside. I was practicing looking inside. Now, I don't know what was looking or what was I was looking at, but I became aware of this sort of internal reality in a very special way. As I continued to do that day after day, week after week, I started to see other stuff in my head. And I realized when I became aware of the other stuff inside my consciousness, I couldn't hear very well. I couldn't feel my body any longer. It had dissolved. Now, when I say my body dissolved, if you were looking at me, you could still see me. I didn't go anyplace. But each and every one of us has an internal picture of our body and where our body ends and the world begins. And I think most of us probably got it from being children. And we would walk into walls and realize that there is a difference between your body and the wall. We are able, after years of practice, to actually reach and pick up water without even looking at our hand going towards the bottle because we have this internal image of where our hand is, what it looks like, and where the bottle is. How cool is that? So what I was getting rid of was not my body, but the image of my body, where my body ended and the universe began. So I became literally part of the universe at those moments of internal uh, awareness of the fireflies and the other images, I dissolved into the universe. And my hearing sense door closed. I couldn't hear anything, and I couldn't smell anything, and I couldn't taste anything, because my sense doors now weren't useful as I investigated my interior reality. My sense doors only work on the outside, but not on the inside. And then I started to see these images, and I started to focus on the images. I would go away from the points of light, and I'd go into the movement of the consciousness and the images. And there were colors, and there were shapes. And I had read someplace about archetypes, and I'm thinking maybe some of these things are archetypes. And what does an archetype look like? Well, I guess we all have different-looking archetypes. Mine are vibrant in color, if that's what they were. But they didn't mean anything to me. I didn't have the code to unlock the archetypes. But in some way, I think I was able to experience them, perhaps. Or maybe I was simply hallucinating. Don't know. But if I was hallucinating, it wasn't because of any chemicals. It was because of my practice of meditation. And then I wanted to intensify this. I wanted to go even deeper. I wanted to fully involve myself in this internal experience. And I came upon the concept of fire breathing or bamboo breath or diaphragmic breathing. But I didn't come upon it in the ordinary way. I came upon fire breathing because I play harmonica. 
And if you play a wind instrument, you eventually will learn how to use your diaphragm. So there I was now, sitting on the floor, squinting my eyes, (laughs) panting like crazy, going deeper and deeper into these ecstatic states. And I was so in rapture. I was just, I would come out of that and I'd be high for two days. I would just walk around smiling at everybody. I was the most pleasant person you've ever been around. I didn't care. I thought the world was just the way it was supposed to be. And then a couple days later, I would crash and go, this world sucks. (laughs) And And then I go back into my breathing and my after images and my internal images. When I read this paper and when I read the psychedelic experience for the first time, I started to see that there are these states of consciousness, there are these colors, that each and every one of us has them in our head already. We don't have to invent them or create them. We simply need to access them. And tranquility meditation, deep states of concentration, allows us to access them. If that is the case, when we are going through our dying process, we don't need to be afraid. We don't need to be anxious. We are simply now experiencing the very same visions and internal realities we did in our meditation practice. And if we're lucky and skillful, maybe we can use our meditation practice in a very unique way as we transition from this lifetime to the next. So my meditation practice actually happened before I read this book or before I read the Tibetan Book of the Dead, but because of my meditation practice, I was able to relate to what they were saying and talking about in a very personal way. But now I want to fast forward to a couple years ago. I had been going into these deep states and I'd been doing this sort of power breathing or bamboo breathing or fire breathing and my mind was blissful and radiant and my heart was open and... But I wanted to go to the end. I wanted to have the most sophisticated meditation practice I could. I wanted to... I wanted to say, yes, I've spent years and years meditating, and this is what meditation really and truly is. So what is the end game of meditation? Where do you finally go? Do you stay in those really deep states of bliss and rapture? Do you stay in this place of equanimity and perfect balance? How does advanced meditation practice look? And what is it called? And I searched, and I read, and I practiced, and I talked, and I listened. I asked questions, and they answered, and I found it. I found the most sophisticated, the most advanced meditation practice on the face of the earth. And this is the one I practice today. And I'll share with you what it is. The most advanced meditation practice is called just sitting. That's it. You don't do anything. Absolutely nothing. But it takes 20 years to learn how to do nothing. It takes 20 years to learn how to just sit. 
and be like a window pane. And sound passes through you, and thoughts pass through you, and sensations pass through you. And there's no one grabbing and clinging and holding on to, and there's no one pushing away and preventing. We are simply part of the universal flow, as we just said. No way to be, no one to be, nothing to attain, nothing to get rid of. No preferences, no choices. Simply a state of being slash doing, sitting quietly. But it took me years and years of practice of high highs and low lows, of confusion and anxiety, lack of clarity, too much clarity, to come to the place of being able to sit with anything and everything. Let it arise, let it exist, let it pass away without ever closing my hand on it. People give and you accept. People take away and you don't close your hand. No clinging, no aversion. That advanced practice just sitting allows you to take that into the world. Well, that's it. That was my talk at True Yoga in Thousand Oaks, California on altered states of consciousness while dying, altered states of consciousness while meditating. Hope you found it interesting. Hope you found it useful. The two books I referred to were The Psychedelic Experience, a manual based on the Tibetan Book of the Dead, written by Timothy Leary, Ralph Metzner, and Richard Alpert, available at Amazon.com. The other book was Preparing for Death and Helping the Dying, which is available at urbandharma.org in the ebook section for free download. I found them both useful in my meditation practice. If you'd like to know more about True Yoga, please visit the website trueyoga.com. If you'd like to know more about me, please visit my website kusala, K-U-S-A-L-A, dot info. And if you'd like to email me, my email address is kusala at urbandharma.org. Well, until the next time, until the next podcast, be happy, be peaceful, and most of all, be free from suffering. <laughs>